This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off today. It's actually her birthday. If you want to send her a note, Libby at Zoomer.ca and wish her a happy birthday. She'll be back on Thursday. Well, we have a lot of juicy topics to discuss with our strategy panel today, most notably the rollout of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine in Canada, and later the Electoral College win for U.S. President-elect Joe Biden. So we'll get right to it. John Capobianco is Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. Charles Bird is Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. And Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. Hello, panel. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. Everybody's well? Loved ones are good? All good. Oh, that's good to hear. Uh, on the Pfizer vaccine, uh, what do you all think about the rollout, which began yesterday in Quebec City, Montreal, and Toronto? Let's begin with Karen. So far, things seem to be rolling out as uh, expected, and I think, I dare say, exceeding people's expectations uh, for the rollout, uh, and that the government approval happened, the vaccine got transported, and it was uh, very quickly and rapidly deployed. So I think that that does give confidence uh, within the public that there will be a, a effective rollout that w- will um, have Canadians vaccinated uh, relatively quickly. Charles, what about you? Well, I think it's uh, the perfect perfect holiday gift for uh, a lot of very anxious Canadians who've uh, been through a very, very difficult year. Uh, a lot of the delivery of the vaccines, the securing of actual doses is going to be done on a piecemeal basis. And that's not only true of Canada, that's true of most nations, given the mix of vaccines that are out there and also how they're being distributed globally. Um, you know, there were obvious concerns that we wouldn't see any vaccines until every American had been vaccinated. I'm glad that that nonsense has been laid to rest. And it's uh, encouraging that the prime minister has just announced the secu- that another 168,000 doses of the new Moderna vaccine will be available. That's out of the contract that the federal government signed with Moderna for 40 million doses. So it feels like we're on track. John, what do you think about how the rollout is going so far? Well, I'm encouraged by it for sure. And I think everybody in, in Canada should be as well, just, just given what we've been through over the, our last, uh, quite frankly, this past year. Um, I, I just, I, I wouldn't say, you know, Ch- Ch- Charles says that the issue of, of, of the, of the vaccine, not, you know, not being, uh, not being made available until, until, you know, sometime New Year was, was nonsense. I think there was some reality to it. I think that the, the challenge was that the government itself had some mixed messages. Uh, over the course of the last couple of months when, when, when pressed by the opposition to give a bit of a plan, uh, as to what's happening with the vaccine, given the fact that, you know, we saw from the Americans, uh, a fairly significant and fairly sophisticated plan and rollout well before we had any answers as to when and how it was going to be happening in, in Canada. So I do think that the opposition played a pretty significant role in pressing 
the government for some answers, given the fact that we had some ministers saying that it was going to be in the summer and some saying that in the fall and all Canadians were going to be happening. You know, all Canadians were going to be getting some sort of vaccine by by the end of 2021. So there was some confusion. I think that all of that to say that, you know, I am extremely happy and and, uh, I've always given credit where credit is due with this government. And the fact that he's uh, he's the prime minister has made some some deals with uh, with the pharma companies to get certainly Pfizer out now, uh, which is the most complicated of all of the vaccines. Um, but but more importantly, I think Moderna and and others that are coming down the pipe uh, are going to get uh, are going to get to Canadians right away. I think is is good news. So all in all, I think the rollout has been successful. I think the provinces. We saw Premier Kenny and, and Premier Ford uh, literally at the, uh, at the at the respective airports waiting for the shipment to come in. Uh, I think it's uh, it's all worked out well, and I and I give the media some credit for for also playing up the you know the first vaccinated people um, in the respective regions getting uh, getting the vaccine. I think is all all good news for Canadians. Uh, yes, even though it certainly is a photo op, it does make us feel good because we know that uh, somewhere do- down the very long lineup of people waiting to get a vaccine individually, we will be in that lineup as well. So it does give us hope at this time of year. And I, I do want to talk about the communication of the vaccine plan by both the federal liberals and the provincial PCs and your impressions. And I'll put that out to our listeners as well. Do you feel as though you're receiving all of the information as our political and medical leaders receive it? Do you feel that it is and has become a transparent process? Or do you feel that there's some news that maybe they're keeping from us and updating us as they feel, uh, you know, serves their purposes? Um, I'd like to hear from you about that. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. 740. Let's go back to the provincial PCs and Premier Ford. Uh, Karen, this time last week, uh, he was still giving his daily updates. He's decided to do away with those. Uh, also in tandem with uh, the legislature adjourning for a couple of months. Uh, your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's the right strategy, to be honest. I uh, Because, you know, at some point, um, and, and I think we all talked about this on the panel, I mean, at some point, uh, the premier becomes the focal point for um, all the good news, all the bad news, and, and everything in between. And, and there's also that the worry that um, by being overexposed, he becomes a less effective communicator, and that it was important to have other people delivering similar messages in order for them to begin to resonate again with the public. And given that we are in the, to a new phase of um, the, the pandemic and that now we're, we're actually dealing with the logistical challenges of, of rolling out this vaccine. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is appropriate that he do take a, he takes a step back and he lets uh, other people do some of the communicating for him that may, you know, because it, it may actually help the government get the word out. And uh, there are some challenges ahead. And everyone is really, you know, to your point, feeling pretty excited about the fact that there is a vaccine being delivered, that's being, um, it, it, the people are receiving, which is great. But um, and everyone can agree that it should go to the first responders, healthcare workers, uh, those in seniors' home, long-term care facilities, and and I think there's general public buy-in that that's the right approach. I think what will become more complicated for the government is uh, who's next in line, and that um, you know is something that again doesn't have to be answered right now, but I think in the next couple of weeks the government really needs to start um, being transparent and communicating with the rest of us. 
you know, how are we going to rule this vaccine out to once we've got the, the most vulnerable people vaccinated, uh, frontline workers vaccinated, who's next? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, we found out yesterday here on the show from the co-chair of Canada's vaccine task force, uh, Mark Lavonin, who ran down the the list of priority people after the long-term care workers, the long-term care residents and uh, the seniors residents, uh, seniors home residents, uh, who's next. And they're actually going to start by age. So over 80, then over 70, over 65, and then they're going to go to essential workers like people who work in the Loblaws um, and shoppers and places like that. But you're right, Karen, we haven't heard that from the prime minister himself, but we are. But we know that there is a a plan. Uh, Charles, can you speak to uh, how Premier Ford is doing on all of this? You know, I think Premier Ford is a lot more comfortable talking in terms of economic recovery and how important small business is and what his government will want to do for small business in the months ahead, because um, we're, we're not exactly out of the woods in terms of the economic fallout. I'm not suggesting for a second that this virus is somehow defeated. I mean, there's still a lot of social distancing and hand washing and face mask wearing still to be done, quite possibly through to the end of 2021. But it it just feels to me that he's never been quite as comfortable on the the science and the manufacturing of vaccines and and their distribution. And so I agree with Karen that that is better left to to others to to speak to. I think there's also going to be, in 2021, a a much greater reliance on uh, scientists and, and more authorities rather than politicians. And Mm -hmm. that's for a couple of reasons. One, I think most officials are very, uh, have, have performed admirably in very, very difficult circumstances. Nowhere more so in the United States, given what they were up against in, you know, Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Um, but also, you are seeing a bit of fatigue on the part of Canadians towards their political leaders when it comes to COVID. I mean, people have been through an awful lot, and they're sort of aware now that there's more to come and that this thing is far from over, even if there is light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm not surprised to see uh, Premier Ford back off a little bit, because, I mean, his popularity has taken a modest hit, um, you know, and there's still the, the reckoning to happen with regards to what happened in long-term care facilities in Ontario, the the debacle that was contract tracing and 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 the, the work that we, we really needed to, to get right. And again, that's for later down the line when we're in a position to look back on all how all this was handled. But, you know, there's some complicated politics there as well. John, do you think it's strategic, uh, Premier Ford stepping back to let others come forward, as, as Karen was mentioning, specifically would be retired General Rick Hillier. If we want him to be the face of the next phase, uh, does that make that does make sense for Premier Ford to take a step back? Yeah, and I also I would remind uh, remind everyone that it was it was the premier who actually first announced Rick Hillier, you know, former general, uh, uh, to lead the uh, the vaccine task force here in Ontario, which which was then followed by by Canada and, and other jurisdictions. Um, so he was he was a leader in, in, in reg- with regard to ensuring that there was some military um, um, leadership and, and expertise that was that was leading the effort, knowing that. 
that it was going to be sort of a militaristic kind of uh, kind of a rollout. So I, I, you know, a lot of people gave gave credit to uh, to the premier for that. Um, and I would also say that you know we we talked about this early on with with respect to as, as the pandemic was in it was in it, at the height where you know every leader was getting out on a, on a daily basis. The prime minister was in front of his cottage and uh, his cottage home, and and other premiers were were all getting out to in, in the various time slots, and it was absolutely needed. Uh, at the time, because no, no one knew what was going on. There was uncertainty, and, and everybody was looking to to their leadership, uh, their respective leaderships, to to find out exactly what was what was happening. And as that became a bit more, as as the pandemic became a bit more known, uh, in as far as you know the, the outcomes and what was happening, um, I didn't blame the prime minister and others for for backing away. And, and the same, I don't blame the premier for for backing away from his from his daily conference calls or daily press releases. I think that. You know, certainly as we saw today with the prime minister, if there's news to be made and news to be shared with respect to vaccines, they will get out there and say it. Same with the prime, with the premier. If there's news to be able to share, um, he will do that. But what you're seeing now is a lot more uh, FaceTime with, with Rick Hillier, who's leading the vaccine effort. And I think that's appropriate. You know, people that are much more in the know with what's happening are going to be the ones that are going to be out there to talking to, uh, to the public more often. I think that's the right thing to do. We, wa- we have some listeners who'd like to get in on the conversation with our strategy panel of John Capobianco, Charles Bird, and Karen Stintz, Jane for Libby, and the phone numbers 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. Margaret and Mississauga, go ahead. Hello, Libby. It's Jane. Oh, no, Go it's ahead. Jane, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. Give Olivia a happy birthday. I will. What I'm calling about, Jane, is um, Mr. Ford was given a great deal of money, I understand, from uh, the Liberal government to support the homes, the retirement homes, uh, and so far we haven't seen any of it. And I'll tell you, my problem is I'm 94. My daughter is a designated uh, caregiver. I have some health problems. And now I learn that every time she comes to see me, she must buy a, a special gown. I had to pay for an extra mask for her, which was $5, which is no problem. But... um I have to pay $15 every time she comes, and she must destroy it uh, as she goes out the door. And to me, I haven't got $15 to put down the sewer every time she comes. Right. What is Mr. Ford doing with that money? Is he saving it and saying, uh, when the election comes up, look at us, I've balanced the budget. And to my mind, it's on the back of the seniors. And Margaret, you're in a long-term care home? You're in a long-term care home or you live at home? I'm in a long-term home. Okay. Uh, Let me put that to our panelists because that is a very important aspect of everything that is going on and possibly why Premier Ford has stepped back from the daily updates. Karen, the outbreak situation in the nursing homes in Ontario is becoming almost as bad as it was in the first wave. Um and we're not really seeing, we're not hearing any stories of positive change in the, in the hallways and the rooms of, of our long-term care homes, even though Premier Ford and Minister Fullerton promised to do just that. 
Yeah, it is a struggle. There's no question. And I think one of the things that will continue to be a problem for the government, even as the vaccines are rolled out, and uh, we've, you know, we've talked about it on this show, is just how hard it's been for families who have loved ones in long-term care and retirement facilities. Because as the families get shut out and the, the, the elderly um, residents are become more and more and more isolated, you know, all these precautions that are being taken is still not controlling the spread of COVID within these institutions. And you think, well, my goodness, you know, it's been so hard for so many. And, you know, we've, we've done, we've made the sacrifices and yet there still seems to be a problem that we can't seem to resolve. And, you know, where are the rapid testing kits for the long-term care facilities? Mm. Why, why are people being forced to purchase their own personal protective equipment if they're essential workers? Because Lynn workers aren't required to, at their own expense, provide these gowns on a regular basis. So there are those kinds of questions I think uh, will need to be answered because there's been a lot of sacrifice and um, and a lot of death in the long-term care facilities that um, it, it completely it has not been completely explained. Charles, that was the first I have heard from a resident of a long-term care home that they have to pay $15 every time a visitor comes in to see them for a gown. Well, talk about hearing it from the front lines. Yeah. And, and our caller, Margaret and, and Karen, really put their finger right on it, which is uh, something we talked about with Libby last week, which was the government sitting on $12 billion in unspent funds, some of it earmarked for spending next year, but still sitting on $12 billion specifically aimed to do something about COVID. And if we're not doing something in our long-term care facilities, then what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And this is a huge problem for the government. And you can see just from Margaret's call that this this is starting to take hold with folks. Um, the sense that, and, and she was quite explicit in saying that this is obviously a play to try to show a better fiscal balance sheet come the next Ontario election. And that's not what people want. People want to know that their government is standing up for them and, and, and spending in a way that's going to protect their health and well-being. And what we're seeing is the exact opposite. John, in terms of the strategy to fix the situation, or at least attempt to fix the situation in long-term care, uh, we don't see Premier Ford reacting yet to the CARP campaign, calling on him to fire his long-term care minister for failing to protect residents in the second wave. What does he need to be doing, uh, at least to show that there is a change that is being made with federal dollars, provincial dollars, whatever it is? Well, and, and I and I, I we've, we've talked about this before too. Quite frankly, Jane, which is there's never going to be enough money uh, and or money fast enough to be able to fix this problem. Long-term care uh, has been a systemic problem that dates back, you know, many many years and over over a number of other governments who who have just failed to do something. And, and COVID has has obviously shone a huge light. Uh, to the failings uh, of, of what we've been seeing with respect to long-term care facilities. So I think, you know, the premier and the government have tried to not only have they recognized it by by ensuring that there was a transparent committee that looked at what the problem was, and they're throwing as much money as they can and have been throwing money uh, in building new uh, new facilities and trying to upgrade those facilities that need to be upgraded. But it's never going to be fast enough. It's never going to be enough. 
uh, and the frustration that we heard from from Margaret and others, and and also uh, Karen, you know, who uh, whose father has been uh, who's in a long term care facility, yes. and we've been hearing from from Karen, quite frankly, some of the challenges that she's been facing and that of her father. Uh, it, it, you know, it is it is an absolute issue that needs to be deal, dealt with. The government of Ontario, sorry, the federal government has recognized it as well. Um, they just need to continually put focus on it and put money on it and try to get this fixed as much as they can, knowing that it's never going to be enough money or never, it's never going to be fast enough. How is your dad doing this week, Karen? Oh, he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's okay. Yeah. Okay. Looking forward to that vaccine, although. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess I'm sure. Well, he, yeah. he's among the first in line, right? Yes, he is. <laughs> All right. Let's go to Al in Brantford. Al has a question for our strategy panelists. Go ahead, Al. Yeah, I was watching Sky News earlier this week or early on the weekend somewhere, and there was they were interviewing somebody. I don't know the country he came from, but his complaint was about the uh, – the uh, developed countries hoarding the vaccine, and they use Canada as an example of we own five times the amount of vaccines that there is to the population. Yes. Why, why, what was Trudeau's idea or the minister's idea on that one? Okay, let me, who would like to take that up? Oh, I'll because, happily take that okay, one. We Charles, have secured, go ahead. We have secured tens of millions of doses of vaccine, which will come from various suppliers. And the Prime Minister has been crystal clear that what isn't used for Canadians will be distributed to the developing world. And he has been praised through across across the world for taking this action. And uh, it, it really is, it, I think it's a symbol of international leadership. So the, the bigger problem will be how many of those doses will come online and when. That's what's, that's what's impossible to say at this point. And you, as I said earlier, these things are going to come out in batches of hundreds of thousands as opposed to tens of millions or hundreds of millions. So it'll be a work in progress. But we've, we've made our position clear that we will send vaccines to the developing world. Yes, I believe that's all part of uh, the COVAX effort that they call it, that Western nations will be ensuring that uh, particularly African nations will be able to receive the vaccine. Who knows when, but there is uh, an effort, a global effort underway by the rich countries to help the poor countries. But I'm, I'm certain that those of us here in Canada will receive the vaccine a whole lot sooner than they do in African nations. Um, and Jane, I, just, I, will, I yeah. would add too. I would just add too that that I think the prime minister would have gotten far more um, criticism had he not ordered enough vaccines, or or if, if there was vaccine rollout and, and there was a number of, of cohorts of, of folks who weren't getting it. The fact that he he over over subscribed and got more. I think I think is far better than, than than the other situation would have been, and I think that that obviously any any use any vaccines aren't being used and being shipped out. I thought was was a smart was a smart play from from the prime minister's perspective. And Jane, if I can if I can jump in, I thank you, John. That's very gracious of you to say. Um, the the other challenge in developing countries is a lack of infrastructure, which tends to suggest that the vaccines and therapeutics that don't require minus 80 refrigeration are going to be the ones that we need to get into those people's hands. And that goes to Moderna, it goes to a number of different vaccines. So it's, again, enormously complicated. 
will likely have to rely on guidance from the World Health Organization in terms of which countries are most in need. Um, the numbers are there, the science is there, and Canada is committed to doing the right thing. In the interest of time, we only have about five more minutes with our strategy panel. I'd like to go to the ongoing U.S. election results. Uh, the Electoral College has given... <laughs> there you go, Charles. Charles is going to mention Trump again. <laughs> oh, I know. Charles, you know that we get a lot of emails to fight back at Zoomer.ca after you talk about Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, I'm, I, I, hope, I hope there'll be even more later on this afternoon. <laughs> okay, well, the Electoral College has given Joe Biden 360 six votes, easily surpassing the 270 needed to win the presidency. That's no surprise. Uh, Karen, what did you make of his speech last night? Oh, you know, it's just, it's, you know, he's doing what he has to do, right? And trying to get the American public to come together. Um, But he was, he was a bit tougher on Trump, though, than he's been in the past. And he seemed to be having some trouble getting through it, too. Like he, I, yeah. I don't. I don't know if it, you know. It wasn't really his style to be a heavy, so he got his throat got caught up a few times, and uh, I just thought he wasn't maybe as comfortable with that messaging as we've come to know Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, I think he he does sometimes have trouble delivering a message anyway, and we saw that in some of the debates. And uh, this one's tougher yet still because it's just so. Um, it's just so strange. It's just weird, like that that a president who's been defeated won't concede. Like, yes. it's just, it's just bizarre. And that there is a whole host of Americans who are, you know, willing to continue to fight this fight that's just lunacy. And, uh, you know, finally, there is a Republican. Um, you guys are going to keep me honest. Mitchell? Is it his name Mitchell in, from Michigan? Who's, who actually said, okay, Sam? I'm leaving the Republican. Sam I'm Mitchell? leaving the Republican that's Party. The one. Yeah. You guys are, you guys are just, you guys are being silly. Like, <laughs> Donald Trump has lost. <laughs> I can't be part of this party anymore. And he's fighting for the Constitution and free speech. And he's fighting all the right causes. So hopefully he sets the example that others will follow. Um, otherwise, it's just going to be, you know, up until, you know, they're saying even up until the uh, inauguration day, it could, this could continue, which would be quite awkward for Joe Biden and Jill. Like, it, and it's just lunacy. Oh, we'll save the final comment for Charles. Uh, yes. John, what do, what do you make of where we're at right now on December 15th? <laughs> well, I think I think that, you know, Christmas is upon us. And and, and, uh, and I think a lot of folks are going to reflect over the Christmas holidays, uh, especially in the U.S. with respect to what's happening. I think Joe Biden needs to get a bit tougher uh, now that now that the Electoral College has uh, sealed the uh, his fate uh, sort of officially from that perspective. So I'm not I'm not surprised that he's making some of these comments. I don't think it is Joe Biden's uh, person persona to be that tough. And I think that's why you're seeing a little bit of, but I think his team is saying that you have to get tough now that this is, this is, this is done. Um, but look, I think a lot of this is done because there are two very critical Georgia Senate races that are going to be coming up in early January. And a lot of this is to shore up uh, the Trump space to make sure that they go out and vote for those two Republican Senate uh, challengers that are critical for the Republicans to, to win and, and uh, maintain majority control of the, of the Senate. Any projections, Charles, as to what is going to happen between now and Inauguration Day? Well, first, well, on January 5th, we will have that Senate runoff in Georgia for the last two remaining seats, which will decide who has control of the Senate. 
And that's one of the interesting sidelines about what Trump has been doing over recent weeks and whether it's going to help or hurt the Republican cause in Georgia. Because in normal circumstances, those should be two safe Republican seats. But when you have the President of the United States attacking the Republican governor of Georgia and the Republican Secretary of State, and you have death threats issued against 20-year-olds who happen to work for you know, the, the voting technology firm that supplied the election infrastructure. I mean, you've got a crazy situation on your hands that's quite unpredictable. And it's all a result of a very simple thing, and that is the perpetuation of a terrible, terrible lie that this election was rigged, that somehow uh, the Democrats stole the whole thing away from Donald Trump, who is the rightful and eternal president of the United States, it runs so totally counter to what the founders conceived of when they wrote the Constitution of what American politics has been based on, which is the orderly transition of power. And for the first time, you have an individual, for his own selfish reasons, who is perfectly willing to just lie. And it is having a cataclysmic effect on Republicans, because they find it very, very difficult to break away from that, although a few and an increasing number are choosing to do so, most of them live in terror that if they cross the great man, they will suddenly find themselves losing their nominations or being primaried. And, you know, there has to be a reckoning for this mm -hmm. at some point, because if there isn't, the great fear is that these kinds of tactics will be employed elsewhere. And, you know, with, with all due respect to my friend John, for whom I have great admiration, there are elements in the Conservative Party of Canada who are great fans of Donald Trump, who think these kinds of tactics are very appropriate, who think that you don't have opponents, you have enemies, and they think that anything goes, and that you can say anything and perpetuate lies, and is, the ends will justify the means. And that's what we've seen in the United States, and it is a disaster. It is a disaster, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I keep thinking about uh, that moment when Joe and Jill Biden get out of their limo on Inauguration Day. Uh, will they be greeted on the steps by Donald and Melania? Uh, in the way that it has happened every time there's been a transition in presidency. I just, something about... I don't about, think Melania will be there. Melania you, will not be there. You I, don't, I place my bet. Oh, I, I see, this is good. I like this. <laughs> well, Trump will have been sworn in an hour before, so I mean... <laughs> Melania's packing her bag. We will have lots to talk about next <laughs> month after the holidays, that's for sure. I thank you all three. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Our Fight Back strategy panel every Tuesday here on Fight Back. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, on the record saying Melania will not be there on Inauguration Day. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.